This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'll begin this morning with Pythagoras and a little lesson in geometry. Pythagoras uh, was a Greek philosopher, mathematician, musician, mystic, cult leader, Uh, Job descriptions weren't so specialized in those days. But his fundamental insight had to do with harmony. And the way things could be organized in terms of ratios, ratios of whole numbers. Uh, particularly starting with musical notes and the way changing the ratio of um, a stop and a plucked string generates different notes and harmonies. And he built up a whole system to understand the order of the universe and we all seem to have a very strong wish to find order in this universe one way or another built on this notion of harmony and of ratios. There's a certain irony in in how he's best remembered now is through the Pythagorean theorem because that gives a very strange result uh, within his own system of harmonies. So you picture a, a square, one dimension of one on each side, and it's easy to say what the distance around the edges are, the uh, perimeter are. It's four times one, it's four. It's easy to say what the area is. One times one, one squared. But now draw a diagonal line between two corners, make two triangles. And it's easy to say what the area of each of those triangles are half the area of the square, one-half. But something very strange happens when you try to figure out the length of that diagonal. And uh, Pythagoras or, uh, gave his name to a solution to that problem where he says that the sum of the squares of the two sides equals the square of that diagonal. 
So if the two sides are 1, it's 1 squared plus 1 squared equals 2. And it means that the length of that is the square root of 2. Now the dilemma is that um, you can't find the square root of 2 in that whole system of the ratio of integers. Um, The square root of 2 is uh, literally an unsayable number. Uh, You can create a symbol to designate it, uh, but it's called an irrational number because it generates a uh, series of decimals that are infinite and never repeats. It's an extremely peculiar idea. Um, if you look at one-third, that generates decimals, 0.33333. It goes on forever, but it repeats. You can see the pattern in it. But you can't do that with uh, the square root of 2. So, at the heart of, you know, so here you've got this guy, Pythagoras, who sort of has a whole system in which the world is built on a harmony of the ratio of things. And this one, the simplest picture you can here is actually generates something that's totally at odds with it. Uh, Creates this impossible number, this anomaly. And so there's something about irrational numbers, uh, square root of two, that became a kind of uh, mystery at the center of the Pythagorean cult. Uh, It was as if it was this secret that we can't really let out about uh, this anomalous fact at the center of this harmonious universe. There's an interesting uh, article by uh, Errol Morris, who uh, most of you would know as a documentary filmmaker, who in a previous life was a graduate student in philosophy with Thomas Kuhn, who is known uh, for the book Structures of Scientific Revolution, where the idea of uh, radical paradigm shifts and uh, Kuhn cited uh, the, uh, this information about Pythagoras uh, as one of the ways he got the idea of the incommensurability of paradigms, that mathematically incommensurable means that you can't describe some, something in, a, in another system. Uh, so that the square root of 2 is incommensurable with the system of ratios. And so he took that idea and said that um, there are all sorts of systems of thought that we have, ways of explaining the world, that um, may be incommensurable with each other. A complicated idea. It's the, it's the problem at the core of translation, of empathy, the problem of other minds, of trying to under, knowing to what extent we ever understand a different culture, a different historical period. 
And Kuhn was in this strange position of uh, being an historian of science who was trying to reconstruct the worldviews of previous generations and at the same time saying that those points of view were incommensurable, not, not fundamentally understandable by us. Now, the way all of this uh, connects to some idea of our practice is that we're always dealing with something that is our own personal system of explanation, of meaning or order in the world, in our own lives. And it may be something that we share with a group or culturally, a religious or cultural vision or idea of how the world works, or it may be very personal, our own personal way of organizing or thinking about our lives. And yet... It's probably fundamentally true that whatever system we have, however logical or reasonable or sane uh, a picture we have, there's going to one day be something that comes into that picture that it's an, that's an anomaly, that just does not compute. And that can take many, many forms. If we have a view of life as basically good, orderly, having some purpose or meaning, one day we will uh, bump into the fact of trauma, and trauma will shatter our picture of an orderly universe, a universe that is just or predictable. On the other hand, if we have a picture of ourselves as deficient, lacking something, then our lives are meaningless, fragmented. We may suddenly have a moment of Kensho, which is an anomaly in that system which suddenly refutes our basic assumption of there being anything missing at all, there being anything wrong whatsoever. And suddenly everything shifts. We have to figure out how do we accommodate that experience into our worldview. It's interesting, uh, sort of, uh, from a from a lot of different perspectives, the way Kensho and trauma are mirror images of each other. Um, I once got to meet a fellow, uh, what's his name, I think, uh, James uh, Austin, the guy who wrote that big book, uh, Zen in the Brain. Uh, It's a frightening book. (laughs) 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 But... um, he goes on at great length trying to 
look at the different parts of the brain where he thinks that uh, some kind of Kensho or Satori experience take place, and how in a moment some kind of experience can permanently alter uh, some kind of neurophysiology of the brain so that it's permanently reset, you know, by Satori. Um, and I um, suggested to him uh, when I met him that I thought his basic thesis, you know, could be put on a three by five card, you know, and 650 pages reduced to the this basic idea that, that Kensho is the mirror image of trauma, uh, that we have trauma is, or PTSD. You know, you can have one experience that permanently resets your experience into a, a state of hypervigilance, hyperarousal, right? That all from then on, the brain processes input as threat, intrusion, right? Just automatically on this reset. Uh, and then what he was saying about Kensho was just like this, you know, mirror image world. Uh, suddenly we'll reprocess things as part of a unified, somehow perfect whole. Right? Anything that comes in has a place in that, that picture of wholeness, no matter what its content. Now, you know, it's interesting to, these are two very different worldviews, and you might say that the traumatized worldview is truer uh, uh, for for most people most of the time. But not all of the people all of the time. Uh, And we want to try to put together something of those two perspectives uh, in our practice. Partly what we, we see as we practice is what kind of difference does a change of perspective make in our lives? Um, in some way, we are engaged in a very physical discipline that resets our worldview or our expectation from the body up, right? Uh, Not cognitively, but sort of physiologically. In sitting, we create a container for a whole range of experience that we learn to simply stay with, leave alone, Uh, not judge good or bad, even though it may have a big range on that kind of pain-pleasure continuum that we're used to dividing everything up on. When we sit, doesn't somehow those differences don't make the usual difference. What does it mean to generalize that to the rest of our life? To, to have the usual differences not make such a difference. To not always divide up everything that happens into likes and dislikes. Right? It's so automatic for most of us to just, everything that comes in, 
we file into one pile or another, right? And so we're just this big sorting machine, right? <laughs> right? And that's all we do, all day. Like this, don't like that. Like this, don't like that. Right? What if we just didn't do it? Right? What if it was just one big, undifferentiated heap of experience? What difference would that make? Right? Something of sitting is like that. Just letting all the thoughts, all the feelings pile up in a big, undifferentiated heap. that makes no sense at all. Right? See, part of the idea of sorting is you figure, well, I'll get to maximize the, the good heap and minimize the bad heap, but long run it doesn't work. <laughs> but, it keeps, but it keeps us really busy. <laughs> See, that sense of the unsorted heap of experience is uh, something at the, like at the root of what um, Bodhidharma says. Uh, when the emperor asks him, what merit is there in all this practice? And who are you? Right? All these questions that we usually have answers for. And he says, I don't know. I don't know. Just doesn't sort it out at all. And that unsortedness is the root of things. Now there's this whole tendency in this practice, I think, to um, try to create a whole new order, a whole new set of meaning that makes the Dharma into something that has content uh, and that um, the new sorting tool is mindfulness uh, where we find ourselves being very meticulous about doing everything, right? As if... um, I caricature it a little bit, but this sense of we will domesticate our lives through this kind of careful attention to every detail. And then everything will be done carefully and mindfully and put in its place and we will have our own new version of an orderly universe because we're so careful. And Zen centers can run that way, Buddhist centers can run that way, they're just spotlessly clean. Everything seems perfectly arranged. There was a very interesting obituary of an old uh, practitioner from San Francisco Zen Center who died recently. Uh, It was some old beatnik who had wandered in there, but he was there from the beginning, you know, from the Alan Watts days. He never really fit into the Japanese Soto style of practice, uh, which, you know, even though at some point I think he was one of the heads of the place, you know, they said, you know, what don't you like about this style of practice? And he said, you know, this, everybody here is just obsessive about cleaning things and being orderly. And, you know, in, in work practice, we, we clean things that have just been cleaned and have been cleaned again, right? He said, uh, 
the Chinese have a whole different uh, uh, approach to, to this. And they said, oh, what's that? And he said, dirt. <laughs> Maybe I'll just leave you with that. There, there, there's uh, something perhaps irreducible. You see, dirt is that sort of anomalous, irreducible part. Right? Um, don't think that we can uh, clean up our act so perfectly. There will be no irrational numbers, no irrational thoughts, no dirty thoughts, no dirt. It ain't going to happen. <laughs>